0: When I wrote about populism and even the radical right in the early 2000s, uh, they looked at me, oh, that's exotic. That's an exotic matter you're writing about. Interesting. While at that moment already, uh, these parties were emerging, were becoming more uh, solid, uh, repeated electoral successes and so forth.
1: Welcome to A History of Xenophobia, from the gold mines to the rise of the far right today. My name is Ariel Glynn, and I'm the host of this History Hope podcast series. History Hope is based at the School of History at University College Dublin in Ireland. You can find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website, historyhope.ie. You can also follow us on various social media, and if you want to get in contact with us about the series, please email info at historyhope.ie. Lars Rensmann is Professor of Political Science and Comparative Government at the University of Passau in Germany. Before joining Passau, he was Professor of European Politics and Society and Founding Director of the Research Centre for the Study of Democratic Cultures and Politics at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. His work focuses on global and European politics and covers a wide range of themes, including, of note for this podcast, populism, populist parties in Germany and Europe, and anti Semitism. His research has been published in numerous journals, and has also written many books on a variety of topics, including in 2017, Politics of Unreason, The Frankfurt School and the Origins of Modern Antisemitism, something that we will touch on in this podcast. Forthcoming book publications from Lars include Governing Populism, How Populist Parties Perform When They Rule in Liberal Democracies, and another book entitled Illiberal Democracy, The Populist Alternative for Germany in European Context. So, Lars, thanks so much for taking the time out to speak to us. I've been looking at your work and, and even articles since 2003. So you've been looking at this topic for uh, a long time, what what interested you about these parties' rise?
0: Well, um, uh, as you know, that um, in the early two thousands, um, uh, I didn't. Uh, I, I started to look at populist parties proper, um, but uh, the wider context. Really, I always looked at uh, the radical right, and I saw um, at that time already when these uh, parties had their initial breakthroughs, uh, many of them. Um that I suspected it was my 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 suspicion, but actually also theoretically and empirically founded suspicion that uh, they they are here to stay. This is not um, a temporary uh, phenomenon that this is something that has emerged against the background of uh, um, uh, of a strong potential support. And at the time we were talking about uh, you know potential voters uh, who could actually be attracted to these parties um, because we knew, um, at the time, uh, and I knew at the time, that uh, there was a large percentage of people who shared uh, uh, xenophobic, authoritarian, nationalistic views. Uh, so the fact that this is in a part of, of our um, contemporary or modern societies was not surprising, and that it would f- this would find potentially also in a political expression was also not surprising to me and to, to some other scholars at the time. Uh, So, um, I looked at it in a wider context of the authoritarian radical right and I saw just populist parties as one expression or one form to channel, to filter that kind of authoritarian sentiments, anger, views, uh, preferences, we would, uh, some would say in the political science lingo, uh, uh, attitudes, uh, uh, that type of worldview that is part and parcel of our modern societies. Uh, that would find an expression, and actually, the uh, potentially the abnormality was that for some time the post-war year, due to uh, the collapse of fascism and the collapse of Nazism, um, uh, those parties were not uh, represented as political parties very much so, and that kind of like uh, that backlash uh, I anticipated to to come. We saw the origins of that at the time, and and this is what happened.
1: Actually, what how do you refer to these parties because? You know, I know people like Kass Mudde talk about the radical right and Matt Golder talks about the far right and you talk about populism. Is, do you have any particular terms or do you think uh, you can use various uh, terminology?
0: I think uh, for some time when uh, uh, the discussions was very much focused on terminology and concepts, um, I would say uh, this is not of the utmost importance. I would see that... Uh, Populism, I would agree with Karls that populism as such is, is just an element of many of these parties, and I would speak of uh, um, radical right populist parties or authoritarian populist parties that combine certain features, including populism, but really uh, it's more uh, a comprehensive outlook and it's positioned uh, particularly here, uh, um, relevant actors are situated on the right. There might be some left-wing populist parties, but really what we're talking about is a relevant political factor. These are uh, radical right uh, populist parties or even... Uh, um, and then I would make distinctions because, of course, radical right populist parties are not necessarily neo-Nazi or uh, um, uh, extreme right parties proper uh they are in, they're incorporating extreme right uh voters they're incorporating they're appealing to these voters but part of their strategy is of course to to not look like the the traditional old fascist or neo-nazi right but actually try to 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 broaden their appeal that's why I, where i would make you know some distinctions but overall i would still situate them as the broad in, in the broader context of of radical right uh parties
1: and why why did People feel that this was going to be a fleeting, you know, that these parties were going to be temporary. You know, you had people like Pujad in the 80s saying, well, you know, give it a few years, no one will have heard of Le Pen. And I remember even The Economist in 1988 saying, oh, a few years, this will, this will disappear.
0: Uh, it's a fascinating, uh, um, it's even in the history of, of social science and, and, and history a fascinating phenomenon, this kind of mm-hmm. denial uh, but we see that all over the place. Uh, uh, first of all, political scientists and historians generally are not very good at making predictions. Uh, think of 1989; who people actually predicted what would happen there? Uh, that's gen- I always tell that my to my students. You know, we're not good at that. Um, secondly, uh, um, denial is very attractive. Uh, you see a phenomenon, you try to you. It's wishful thinking. You want to downplay it. You you look for some data that proved that basically the party system uh, and political representation is, is solid. Uh, um, um, and uh, um, yeah, many colleagues of mine uh, at the time, when I wrote about populism and even the radical right in the early 2000s, uh, they looked at me, oh, that's exotic. That's an exotic matter you're writing about. Interesting Uh, Good that there are also some people writing about this. Uh, I taught at the University of Michigan. People always looked strangely at me when I I said, like, I wrote another article on on, on populist radical right, while at that moment already uh, these parties were emerging, were becoming more solid, uh, repeated electoral successes and so forth. Um, so wishful thinking, denial, uh, um, and uh, uh, and again, being somewhat late, being somewhat behind. I mean, history is our lap, also for political so- social scientists, but uh, um, basically people were not ready to to acknowledge uh, that they were, what I said, potential voters that were people who are ready to break away from the established system, uh, um, for, from established democracy, challenged that. And uh, the just uh, certain things had to change, conditions had to change. We'll talk later about political communication uh, that that changed. Um, uh, we, talk, we can talk about uh, class configurations, the welfare change, uh, state that changed, globalization, certain indicators and certain factors that came together uh, pushing this, uh, but the potential was always there. And if you recognize that potential, there's no way to to justifiably say uh, and argue that this could not turn into something bigger. That there couldn't be a bigger uh, backlash, authoritarian movement against democracy again. Uh, so um, for me, I was I was I was felt, I don't want to be right all the time. But, well, I, maybe I do, but um, I always felt like, well, this is kind of. Uh, um, you're not taking this seriously, and and that is something, um, or the the phenomenon of the rising radical right and authoritarian movements, and uh, um, and that might be uh, um, uh, um, a negligence to to, to not do uh, so. It's kind of like, uh, um, yeah, a superficial approach to to uh, to a particular constellation, and to think that this this would last forever, and not seeing, understanding the the profound. Uh, insecurities, um, contradictions um, built into modern society, even modern uh, capitalist societies um, at that.
1: And this is going a bit off topic now, but you talk about this memory of the Holocaust. And, you know, when this kind of fades, it, um, it means there are more opportunities for these kind of views to become more popular and prominent. Could you explain that
0: to us? Even go back to the first question, of course, for me, uh, as my background as a, as a German, that whole question of like, what do we do with the legacies from Nazism and fascism, um, that always played a role that also triggered in many ways, potentially my interest in, in the question of what's happening to the radical right and what's happening to people who are somehow still supportive of these views or will be supportive of these views uh, um, again Um that's an aspect um, that uh, it's not just the Holocaust. It's also, of course, the World War and the, this age of destruction that we witnessed in the mid uh, 20th century. Uh, that this is a, uh, um, a a memory that is that is, uh, yeah, fading. Um, and um, and with the fact that this is fading, of course, uh, particularly younger generational courts, we have some some data of that. Um, they no longer uh, uh, say. Uh, or at least they don't score scan out 10 out of 10 to say like, is it very important for you to live in a democracy? Uh, Particularly younger generational cohorts where this memory is far away. They can't, they don't have the, often the political imagination uh, to see what it means when you no longer have a democracy in which you live, where you can articulate uh, somewhat freely your your views, um, uh, where you do have uh, uh, a due course and, uh, and courts you can turn to, uh, um, where you do have uh, a minimum of civil rights and, and civil protections, where you can articulate yourself politically and vote and so forth. Um, so to, to understand, like to, to, to live in a society that is somewhat pacified uh, uh, and that allows at least for some space for democratic uh, iterations and, and articulations and freedom, um, uh, that is a problem when, you're, when that, that history of war seems to be so distant. And even though we live in a globalized society and we uh, get the media news about uh, violence and conflicts all over the world, and we also arguably still live in an age of global conflict, it, it doesn't seem uh, as real as, uh, um, and so uh, people very often, and also younger generational cohorts, cannot envision what it means to no longer have you only uh, these these freedoms. So you only, you very often, as the saying goes, uh, you understand um, uh, what you've uh, um, once something's gone. Uh, um, you uh, it takes something to or something to, to to go until you understand what you're actually missing there. Um, and uh, And how much you miss it um, and but once freedoms are taken away uh, it 's very difficult to 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 get them back and uh, win the struggle to 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 regain them
1: yeah i I, I think of the Netherlands and you know i know you're you 're teaching in the Netherlands, and um, I was just giving a lecture before this uh, where I showed a photo of uh, outside the binnenhofs so of the parliament buildings in The Hague in the 1980s when uh, Hans-Jan Matt, the leader of the Centrum Democrata, was was uh, just about to uh, start his term. And there was huge protests, you know, all these like, no to fascism, this is return to what happened in the 1940s and stuff like this. And then I see uh, the election in the Netherlands, where you had three kind of nativist kind of radical right parties um, together, getting more votes than uh, the Social Democrats, the greens together. Um, and, and there's very little protest or very li- little said in reference to the Second World War or the Holocaust in relation to this. Maybe just returning, because your um, excellent article uh, with Jennifer Miller from 2010 gives a good overview for uh, students and the public alike about how, you know, there's so much going on with this topic, but it's, it's hard to kind of uh, put order on it but you do so, I think, to excellent effect in this article. And so you talk about demand side factors and uh, supply side factors. So which, for you, are the the most important, most salient demand side factors?
0: Um, well, um, first of all, what I'm trying to argue and always trying to argue is that we always need to look at the interplay. As I said, um, uh, you know, there are these potential voters. There's an authoritarian potential in society. Uh, for this type of backlash that we've been witnessing over the last uh decade and two um, and uh, so we always need to look at the combination of these you know demand side conditions or potential and and how they are triggered and mobilized um, uh, in terms of the demand side, I would say that um, uh, there are um, there has been the thesis by modernization theorists like robert inglehart uh, ronald ingelhart that um uh, there's uh, basically a uh, a silent revolution that uh, societies around the world have more and more advanced to more post-material values, and that goes, that is a result of of economic modernization, uh, less uh, modern, less uh, um, um, uh, material insecurity in society that uh, basically gave to um, uh, enabled the rise of a more self-conscious middle class that also. Uh, demanded more democratic participation and more uh, post-material self-expression values. Um, And with that, uh, um, uh, Engelhardt sees that that overall, over time, that there is a a push towards more uh, democracy. And I would agree to some extent that this has happened, that in places where um, at least some level of or a greater level of uh, of, uh, material security has been uh, um, uh, realized uh, for some time, um, uh, that this has enabled people to, to uh, look beyond their immediate material concerns and social, and we do see some levels of social value change happening over, uh, uh, over time. Um, I would be, uh, um, Engelhard himself uh, with Pippa Norris now talks about the cultural backlash thesis and, and, and looks at how this cultural backlash has happened, the authoritarian backlash, backlash has happened that we've been witnessing lately, uh, he turned to, to that, however, much later than I did, seeing that, you know, there is uh, the also, as Piero Inazzi already said, in the early 90s, there's also a counter-revolution happening. And we also need to look at that counter-revolution and uh, the fact that uh, with social value change, uh, you always had, uh, all the time, uh, forces at play that were dissatisfied, uh, uh, that expressed the discontent with that. Um, uh, and, and they now become, as I said in a later article, become noisy. They have uh, um, now have found the articulation, the media, um, the political parties that to express their discontent anger with social value change, with cultural change, uh, also with economic change. Um, so that's one uh, key aspect that this was always there all along. Another aspect that Inglard, to some extent, also admits is that uh, we have to be careful when we use modernization. Modernization doesn't necessarily mean more economic insecurity. It can also actually modernization. We have to be careful this concept um, to, to, to glorify modernization. Modernization, very often we know this from history, comes along with, with all types of, of oppression, exclusions, uh, and potentially with a widening gap, um, as we see in the age of neoliberalism that we've been witnessing over four decades and welfare state regress. Um, with a widening gap uh, of uh, class uh, of positions, that uh, some uh, people actually are not more material secure. They're increasingly materially insecure. They have to work three jobs uh, to to make ends meet, uh, to make a living. Um, uh, they don't have. They need to. They, they live in flexibilized, as they call it. Uh, um, uh, labor relations and uh, and they don't they can't really plan their future and so that uh, um, bolsters uh, uh, this kind of toxic dynamic that we are uh, witnessing um, and that is also part of the of this uh, you know if you will the demand side uh, factors and what I also want to of course uh, um, express is that we never should under, under underestimate the general authoritarian underlying aspects of modern society, even though certain freedoms and uh, democratic uh, freedoms and rights are granted, uh, um, authoritarianism has been part and parcel of our modern societies and never went away. That uh, um, uh, the uh, insecure positions of people in society, the uh, um, um, uh, and the, 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 the wish that comes along with uh, all types of domin- social, social domination, oppression, that comes along with the wish for, for uh, direct forms of, uh, of authoritarian power.
1: Yeah, you, you draw uh, extensively on the work of the Frankfurt School and the political psych- psychology of authoritarianism associated with fascism. Why do you think this is relevant also to explain what's going on more recently with the rise of these radical populist parties?
0: Now, um, all social science and political science and uh, um, social theory is, of course, uh, as once again, that's also, a, there's a subjective dimension to it. And I was interested in the Frankfurt School, I have to admit, since I was a teenager, I read their works. and was always inspired by some of uh, uh, what they've uh, of many things that they've they've written. And uh, uh, as I would uh, be critically reflecting on some of their arguments, I find others uh, more uh, inspiring. I always, uh, um, but it it helped me understand. Uh, in many ways um, uh, already at a young age the the dangers of authoritarianism and how it it functions. And I feel today, um, which is why I'm returning to that work, uh, work that I've done 20 or more years ago, uh, I feel uh, this has become more more, uh, relevant today than than it has uh, arguably um, uh, been 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, As we see that, uh, and that i can turn to the supply side that you uh mentioned that we see that um ultimately uh, um it's it's not enough that that there are individuals with individual dispositions or attitudes that uh have some kind of authoritarian fantasies uh, uh it's a big question of how this becomes uh, transformed and transferred into a political force and and this is what what we've seen and i think we can take a lot learn a lot from the frankfurt school to understand not only that there's a uh, there are built-in uh, contradictions in society that um, uh, uh, reproduce authoritarian uh, views uh, um, um, uh, and, and unresolved conflicts, if you will, in society—social, economic conflicts, uh, uh, cultural uh, type of conflicts—but also that actually there are uh, there need to be agents, and agents can efficiently. Uh, um, mobilize this uh, with uh, very often psychological means. And and that is one of the things that I find particularly uh, uh, um, intriguing about the Frankfurt School. Even if we don't buy in, in some of the Freudian or wider Freudian assumptions, uh, we can learn a lot from Frankfurt School empirical studies in the 1940s, uh, for instance, uh, how um, mechanisms of agitation uh, work, how uh, authoritarian ideas and fantasies can be Triggered mobilized and put into a a, a political um, uh, movement and transformed into a political movement and this entails very often uh, um, appealing to exactly these authoritarian fantasies and they are uh, uh, and that's a key insight I think from the Frankfurt school that uh, um, uh, they are successful not because they are promising economic benefits. They are successful not because they are um, uh, because they are offering a specific policy to solve a problem. They are offering something uh, uh, else. They are salesmen of psychological desires and salesmen of uh, of cultural uh, alleged cultural gratifications and benefits, and they are very good salesmen at that um uh, even if uh, slogans and ideas seem to be simplified and, and and clear they're really they're selling something else and 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 that is what we need to understand and I think digging deeper in the Frankfurt school, they give us a lot of tools and insights that become and have become uh, relevant again when we look at uh phenomena today of riping populist parties in Europe but also of course uh uh, the former president, uh, Trump, who's operating, who has been operating with many of these tools um, uh, that the Frankfurt School has described uh, many decades ago uh, in a different context now of, of uh, social media agitation. My, my students
1: frequently say social media is is a big part of explaining the puzzle. and um, And, you know, I'm always a bit hesitant because... There hasn't been that much research on this yet. You know, it it seems to make sense when, especially when, you you know, talk about Cambridge Analytica and these kind of um, things we know that are going on in the background. But you do pay extensive attention to this and come up with some interesting arguments about, you know, the methods uh,
0: used. Can you tell us a bit about these Sure, Um, uh, you're absolutely right that uh, really good research on the effects um, and the role of of social media um, in political communication and also in the rise of uh, then ultimately authoritarian uh, um, uh, actors uh, is is still under research. There's much more research now going on. It's been increasing. I have uh, two doctoral students working on that, Um, but it's uh, increasing across uh, the board for sure. Um, uh, it is, first of all, um, uh, uh, just on, on, on the surface, uh, um, it has been studied and shown that populist parties and radical right parties make extremely much more use of uh, Facebook and Twitter than uh, regular um, you know, as types of established parties or left-wing uh, uh, parties. Uh, that's just really a, a fact. And, um, uh, um, and we all know about the, the, the Twitter presidency um, that uh, um, Donald Trump uh, represented. Um, uh, what I find key here is that um, uh, there is a replacement of intermediaries uh, that social media represents. And, um, and what they're doing there is by no longer having social media, uh, uh, as, uh, these intermediaries, um, social media function as what I would say is a triple-fold um, uh, filter um, that allows for some kind of uh, um, unchecked, uh, um, immediate uh, um, um, proliferation of hate speech, disinformation, and ultimately polarization. Um, uh, at least I would make that argument. Um, you're right to say that uh, it hasn't been sufficiently um, uh, empirically tested. bulian Kork, Michalska, and Bimber, they argue that it's not the case. But there's also quite a few uh, authors uh, that have started studies showing the role in amplifying hate speech. Uh, we all do know that um, uh, among uh, its puppies, its uh, uh, babies, and its hate speech that tends to gather uh, the most attraction uh, and most likes and most support and most amplification on social media. And that's not a good thing. So um, uh, and uh, uh, social media corporations know that uh, if they have the more controversial, the more polarized statements they have, uh, um, um, they want that. They, they, they have created built-in algorithms that actually uh, uh, allow uh, this to, to, to uh, proliferate. And I do think, um, again, like this is to a large extent, you're absolutely right, just hypotheses uh, that have been only marginally empirically tested. We're working on testing this more robustly, um, uh, and many scholars do. Um, but there is a, a, a triple fold uh, on the individual level, uh, uh, filters uh, on the social level, uh, um, an information filter on the, on the technological uh, level, uh, um, an information filter that basically allows for um, uh, a reproduction of hate speech, fake news, uh, disinformation, conspiracy myths uh, on a level that hasn't been there before. We haven't seen that level of of. Uh, uh, a communication uh, um, and the possibility to have a global communication, spreading uh, um, completely crazy post-factual ideas at that uh, speed that we are doing today. And the hope was initially that social media actually could provide an immediate fact-checking uh, um, uh, um, opportunity, a corrective, uh, and that we all know that this didn't happen. Uh, there is the potential for this corrective, but the corrective is is overwhelmed by the flood of disinformation, misinformation, fake news, uh, whenever something happens. There were 60,000 followers immediately liking the idea uh, that the Boulder shooting didn't happen in the U.S. So basically, it's like, you know, as it happens, it's actually not proof. uh, The facts are not just simply checked by some, uh, but at the same time, uh, the very facts are outright denied. Um, and uh, so that environment, uh, we do know that the environment has massively changed. Um, uh, I do suppose that political polarization and uh, radical right um, ideas that are very often uh, fake ideas di- based on disinformation, post-factual benefit from, from this climate. They do make extensive use of it. When you look at uh, uh, radical right populists, uh, um, they, they extensively use uh, um, uh, social media to communicate um, you also know that uh, since uh, Trump is off Twitter, uh, you know uh, his communication flow with his supporters become very very complicated, and he insisted on this is my uh, um, uh, my tool to directly communicate my communicate with my supporters. And the final point I want to make is, of course, a large share of responsibilities are in this process. Which once again, you're also right to caution to be cautious about this, but I do think we have some kind of at least robust hypothesis here to be tested. Um, is that social corporations, the, these giant social media corporations play a big role in this. Uh, they have, uh, under the uh, the claim that they are simply uh, providing a platform of ideas without interfering, they have allowed, uh, with uh, hidden, uh, intransparent algorithms, they have allowed um, for uh, all of these disinformation, uh, hate speech to flourish uh, unrestrictively, to uh, basically tear down civil boundaries or, or bound, social boundaries of, of our conversations, um, uh, which has led uh, a, a ch- has led to a chilling effect on people to to even speak. We do not shouldn't underestimate the 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 effect on free speech uh, by letting this happen. People always talk about oh, if you you want to regulate uh, uh, Facebook, you want to curtail free speech. No, actually. Free speech is curtailed right now because uh, um, uh, reasonable people who want to comment on something or criticize something are, are uh, attacked uh, with murder threats uh, and their voice will be suppressed in the long run. People are intimidated from speaking up because they feel they get attacked, uh, and as soon I have young colleagues who get murder threats on a daily basis just because they're speaking up on radical right populism. And we need to step in. We cannot allow this to happen. We need to return to a to a, to a different type of conversation. But so far, uh, social media co- uh, corporations have been the big culprits. They were big benef- uh, beneficiaries from uh, um, from these developments, from polarization, from the rise of hate speech. And actually, they, are, they, are, um, they were. we can show this in the case of Bolsonaro uh, and uh, um, uh, YouTube, um, and the rise of Bolsonaro was a, basically a, a backbencher uh, initially uh, before he became a YouTube uh, hero. Um, uh, that people, algorithms put him uh, into the, the position or in the, um, uh, that he is uh, in right now. People who just wanted to learn a guitar lesson ultimately ended up listening young folks uh, to a Bolsonaro uh, video. And, uh, and we should not forget the responsibility of social, social media. And I think this is uh, one of the major tasks. We have some big tasks in our world right now, climate change and others. Uh, but one of our major tasks is to, to get this right and, and, and restore some kind of public sphere that actually is a functioning public sphere. Right now, I think it is not. And I, right now, I do think that the, this technological change, the restructuring or the structural transformation of the public sphere in our day and age has very much contributed to, uh, that's my hypothesis, to the rise of uh, this explosion of, of of hate speech and, and bolstering uh, of uh, radical right discourses.
1: Yeah, they do seem to be very much ahead of the game in terms of how they used these uh, social media platforms. And there seems to be some parallels there with, you know, what occurred after the First World War. You know, I, a great book that I always mention to people is Walter Lippmann's public opinion uh, just after the First World War and we know about uh, fascist use of propaganda and also use of radio you know that but I wonder there does seem to be at least uh, looking from afar a difference in in that anti-semitism doesn't appear to be too prominent in these radical right parties Uh, obviously not always the case And, and as you said um, the message might be very black and white, but we know that behind that it's it's much more complicated and the, and they are also careful not to say these things. So we, we see like Gianfranco Fini in Italy with Alianza Nazionale you know turning you know its back on its kind of fascist past, and we see Marine Le Pen trying to sanitize the party. so, so what where does anti-Semitism feature
0: in this story? i would I would uh, somewhat disagree on that. I think like when we take a closer look, actually antiSemitism features quite prominently it It comes along as we see we, uh, things that we know from studies of institutional racism that it becomes uh, it comes along a little bit more coded often, uh, a little more more camouflaged uh, in this day and age. um marine Le Pen before the the last presidential uh, uh, election in France for example, said that um, uh, in a public speech for no reason. Uh, that uh, you can no longer have uh, double citizenship if you're Israeli. Um, uh, um, in, in France, like this is not a subject of a conversation in a political campaign on the future of France as a presidency, right? So uh, we can see how these demagogues uh, tend to signal to their audience certain things. And, uh, and it's, it's about these signals and really, and actually the Frankfurt School has really uh, shown that, that uh, um, the audience understands what is said by this, by talking about denying uh, a jews a certain citizenship you know you don't have to say like i'm talking about the jews i'm attacking the jews here but actually you sent the signal uh, um, i want to deprive you of a certain citizenship status i want you into trouble i'm, I'm sending a message here and it's not a good message for the jews uh, but we also live in a in this ongoing age of global conflict and to some extent of course Awareness of global conflicts and 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 a, an easy uh, way that comes very handy to make sense of that is to blame the Jews. It's a traditional way since since ancient times. Uh, um, if there's global conflict, if there's global uh, conditions or um, violent conflict, uh, if there's globalization. Uh, um, Jews tend to be blamed as the one uh, the uh, the ones pulling the strings behind uh, the scene. That's a that's a historical anti-Semitic narrative, and we do see it coming into play. Um, so other resentments, uh, there are lots of discriminations against minorities, there's racism, um, there's institutionalized forms of racism, there's discrimination of Muslims in our society, but antisemitism fulfills a different function. It fulfills this kind of global conspiracy myth. And that is an historical narrative that particularly in times of crises uh, like today, that, that is easily coming, is remobilized uh, as, a, as a as a narrative uh, to personify uh, the problems, the social malaise, uh, the conflicts of our of our age, um, and it's it's coming back in full force. We see how conspir- anti-Semitic conspiracy uh, conspiracy myths are um, ventilated, or articulated on uh, um, in, through social media, in the internet, uh, in public speeches. Become more and more legitimized, more aggressive, um, and sometimes, however, also coded. Uh, but uh, this type of function, the global conspiracy myth um, to explain uh, what is a post, uh, supposedly wrong with this world, um, uh, that comes into uh, play. Um, and and uh, so I don't think anti Semitism uh, will um, dissipate anytime soon or will be in that function be replaced um, uh, by other resentments. Um, uh, uh, and with the radical right, um, uh, again, um, resentments or, or, or authoritarian attitudes—they they often come in a batch. They don't—they don't. They don't uh, uh, it's not you either that or, or that. You can be uh, anti-Semitic and against Muslims and against minorities and be racist and looking for an authoritarian society. And very often, uh, we see actually a, a combination of all these things.
1: I, I think that's a fascinating, fascinating insight. So we we have to look. A bit more carefully you know as you said it's coded it's there it's under the hood but it's maybe not obvious we have to look around join the dots um and and i suppose it's there for for those people who know that code quite well but for, for maybe some of us who don't we need to be more conscious of this you you talk about how and this is a feature quite prominently in a lot of the literature that you know culture always is more powerful than kind of economics you know that uh, and and I think Ingelhart and Norris they also show in this graph that non-economic issues have become more prominent than economic issues. Why why is the cultural domain such a rich one for these populist radical right parties?
0: Well, uh, as I said, they they're not offering economic benefits uh, usually. Um, uh, I would argue that um, we do need to look at the combination of both. So uh, yes, the cultural appeal as I said before um, that's very much attached to the psychological of, of, uh, appeal so if you don't offer any economic goods um, and and in fact the left has has also failed to offer economic goods for many we have uh, many of the center left parties um, uh, have basically for the last four decades been a part and parcel of welfare state regress and have you know played that neoliberal game to increase material insecurity so don 't really uh, haven 't really offered any goods and Uh, So that makes it much easier than to focus on the psychological uh, and and cultural dimension to say, well, we're not offering any goods, but we are offering some type of uh, um, nostalgic feeling of nativism uh, um, of a nation that um, probably never existed, but of kind of community uh, that has been uh, shattered by globalization. And uh, so, for me, it's important to 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 understand the, 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 this cultural force, which is why I called for this cultural turn of of uh, populism uh, studies or understanding radical right uh, populism. And once again, the Frankfurt School, but also others, uh, can give us some sociological. Uh, um, insights and helping in fostering that that uh, cultural turn, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also look, of course, at economic factors and an economic uh, role. And one um, uh, toxic combination that I see is, in fact, uh, quite that the 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 fact that uh, when uh, center-left parties uh, all across the world in established democracies turned neoliberal. That was the moment when they very often also turned more pro-immigration and being more inclusive. And, uh, um, and on the level of appearance, to speak with Marx and Hegel, on the level of appearance, that's a toxic combination to people. To, because you're basically instigating this reified notion that with more cosmopolitanism, with a more globalized, internationalized society, comes automatically along welfare state regress. So basically, um, uh, you become more materially insecure the very moment uh, society decides to open up uh, um, to to become more uh, culturally inclusive, Uh, which is again, like it's a toxic combination uh, because you tell basically voters, citizens that uh, this is a a built-in match. Uh, We know it's not true. It's not that immigrants cause uh, economic insecurity. It's not true, it's a lie. But uh, um, but by combining policies of welfare state to state regress of neoliberalism of privatization of politically um, uh, um, organized uh, material insecurity for large parts of the population by taking away as we see in the UK taking away uh, public libraries uh, community goods uh, destroying uh, uh, public sites privatizing everything privatizing the rail system etc. Doing all that at the very moment where you as a society become more uh, uh, um, inclusive, you know, I'm saying like society should have become more inclusive, but uh, we should have actually transformed a uh, previously, largely with the exception of the UK and, and France in Europe, at least ethnic social welfare state. The welfare state was largely ethnic because citizenship was grounded in ethnic youth sanguinis um, and uh, in blood laws and ethnic identities. Um, um, uh, so th- we should have transformed the ethnic welfare state to, be, to create a more European inclusive, uh, culturally inclusive welfare state. But the opposite happened. Uh, inclusiveness uh, was matched with more and more material insecurity, more and more transfer of wealth from the very poor to the very rich uh, through politics uh, and policies of, of uh, neoliberal privatization, deregularization and welfare state regress. And that kind of original sin, uh, I would call it, in the 1980s, uh, uh, Reaganism, Thatcherism, uh, uh, the Kohl era in Germany and elsewhere, uh, where the social democratic parties, the center-left parties basically decided, well, we play along. We're just going kind to of destroy the social welfare state. Um, uh, we're not going to let housing uh, um, uh, just uh, leave it to the free market. We stopped supporting public housing, et cetera. Uh, that has clearly uh, co- um, contributed to the fact that there was always the cultural uh, counter-revolution potential, there was always the authoritarian potential within society, but this kind of like, uh, um, you know, pulled everything open and created this opening, the combination of economic insecurity, this potential, and the absence of, of center-left parties to, to stop, in fact, they, uh, they supported this very process. Um, which, again, on the level of a reified level of appearances seemed that uh, more inclusive means more insecurity, material uh, uh, problems, struggles uh, and, and so forth. And uh, so these are big political failures that uh, um, hopefully will be uh, remedied and they cannot be remedied by politics of Brexit and nationalism and blind sovereignism. They will not contribute to any Uh, um, you know, better situation. We know that nationalism is not the answer. Uh, We know it uh, from the very case of Brexit because uh, um, uh, Brexit basically is just like that. It offers a cultural response, alleged sovereignty over what? Over... London plus manchester um, uh, um, and uh, a few other areas because potentially Scotland, Wales will leave you know Ireland we have all these the issues so of a shrinking planet shrinking place uh, more sovereignty um, a, a cultural appeal um, while uh, uh, the social goods are not there um, and and the the social welfare state regress that happened in the uk uh, the housing crisis the uh, um, is, is is clearly of the UK's own making, it has nothing to do with the lie that it was the European Union. And here we see once again that actually um, nationalism uh, or nationalist parties they don't offer the um, uh, the economic uh, uh, well-being um, or as as response to that they offer just these type of uh, uh, um, cultural goods, uh, psychological uh, appeals and. Um, uh, and, and it will not be uh, the answer to, to solving the economic issues. One answer to solving economic issues is what we're talking about right now, luckily, uh, to, um, to uh, create taxes for big corporations that act globally. Because now, right now, uh, there's a huge let-off for all these global corporations that, that, uh, um, uh, that basically create tax havens all over the world, and, and everyone is complicit in that. And until we are able to find a global solution, Uh, um, to to curtailing not just social media, but also other types of global corporations, um, we will not uh, uh, sufficiently address these type of social questions.
1: This book you're working on, on, and a special issue that you edited with Sarah DeLange and Stefan Kopras about illiberal democracy. Maybe you could just explain that lastly to, to listeners, what that means.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. A liberal democracy is a a term particularly coined uh, by the radical right uh, populist authoritarian uh, leader of uh, Fidesz uh, in Hungary, um, Viktor Orban, others have used it as well, Uh, and it implies that uh, basically these authoritarian parties make these kind of uh, um, claim that they are the expression of the will of the people. It's part of the of the, the populist DNA to say, like, you know, the elite is cheated. In many ways, I mean, they they do have an argument that basically certain elites, times of economic elites become richer and richer. So there is actually a, a real world grain of truth in this, uh, the way they frame it. Um, of course, authoritarian populist parties tend to be much more corrupt on average than even other <laughs> parties, so that's a different story. Um, uh, But they make the claim that they express the true voice of the people, and that actually goes back to to fascist ideas uh, where um, uh, Carl Schmitt has described Adolf Hitler as uh, uh, true democracy is um, when in the Reichsparteitag on the uh, the party assembly, um, there's a huge crowd uh, acclaiming the leader's words. Um, So there's this claim that uh, when Trump's speech that, you know, um, I'm expressing here the the voice of the people in its inaugural address, he said, like, uh, the people are back in Washington or, you know, they've returned. And this we can see uh, up to January 6th uh, to the claim that uh, we, the people, because Trump said so, are uh, recapturing uh, and regaining, uh, entering the uh, Congress because it's our house. So there's this claim about democracy that is deprived from liberal features. But here I'm not talking about neoliberalism. Here I'm talking about constitutional guarantees such as civil rights, such as Freedom of, uh, of expression, such as um, political participation, allowing everyone to vote, something that the Republicans right now also try to uh, take away from people. Um, and uh, so the idea is that we can have a democracy without these kind of uh, uh, liberal features of pluralism, of uh, um, uh, guaranteed rights, etc., that are... Uh, and I would argue, well, um, you cannot have that. That doesn't exist. And we, we, we look at this claim empirically, but also theoretically and how, how wrong this is because uh, without these features, democracy is, has no chance of surviving. Um, uh, democracy can can uh, be a claim um, uh, against kind of uh, existing constitutions in an authoritarian context where people say like, we need to raise up, we challenge the existing regime that deprives us from our rights. But in the long run, it always will need to entail these constitutional guarantees and features civil and human rights and if it doesn't it's not going to be a democracy it's going to be the end of democracy so ultimately illiberal democracy is a claim that is a contradiction in adjecto. it's a contradiction in and of itself Uh, it cannot uh, be sustained it cannot exist in the long run you cannot have a democratic society that doesn't uh, guarantee individuals the rights of political participation civil rights A bias corpus, um, uh, due process, and so forth. And if you don't have that, if you undermine that by legal means, by other means, uh, by social means, by economic means, you'll ultimately don't have democracy.
1: Well, a lot of food for thought, some depressing food for thought at times as well. But Lars, thanks so much for taking the time out to talk to us today. I I hope everyone enjoyed that. Thank you very much, Lars Rentsman.
0: Thank you for, for having me. It was a pleasure to have that conversation.
1: find a huge range of podcasts and videos showcasing historical research on our website historyhope.ie. you can also follow us on various social media and if you want to get in contact with us about the series please email info at historyhope.ie.